edition of the EDVC podcast. Eric Gilgratz and Brian Coleman as we approach Super Bowl Sunday. We're recording this on a Tuesday afternoon. And Brian, uh, we got a big Super Bowl and we also got a big guest that I want you to tell folks about that you lined up all on your lonesome. Tell me how this came out. Who are we talking to today? Yeah, Chris Herring, who's a writer, uh, got a new book out. And I think I actually saw this and I thought, ooh, what a cool thing because I know my co host is a big New York Knicks fan. I was, yes. You were, okay. <laughs> still am, but you know. Still are. So Chris Herring's been a, a writer for uh, Sports Illustrated for a long time. His new book is called Blood in the Garden. It's about the 1990 New York Knicks. Yep. And so, you know, uh, I read a lot of the book last night. I was plowing through it. It's a really interesting read. I'm not a huge Knicks fan, as you know. Mm-hmm. But the book itself, I thought, was just really interesting. It was an, it, it details an interesting time in not only New York City basketball but the NBA. Yeah. Um, yeah so it's called "Blood in the Garden: The Fragrant History of the 1990s New York Knicks." So we're talking about the, the Pat Riley, Patrick Ewing, John Starks, Knicks, Charles Oakley Knicks, and those. You can speak better this than I can, Eric, since you were living closer to here during the 90s. Because we're both old. Yep. Those Nick teams were beloved in the New York City area. Um, yeah, it was a it was a great time because you had the Rangers and the Knicks both uh, on a similar path of success. You know, uh, Mark Messier came to town with the Rangers. You know, the goal to right. win. Pat Riley came to town with the Knicks and the goal to win a NBA championship. Both of them getting to the title games in 1994 with the Rangers winning and then the Knicks falling short in Houston. Well, you're right. Though that that 94, especially, I watched. Every Ranger and every nickname. Yeah. You couldn't get enough of it. I mean, the, I mean, that was at the height of Mike and the Mad Dog on WFAN, where you were you were running to the um, to the radio the next day after a tough Nick loss, or you know, there was always <laughs> something a fight, you know. There's always something. Yes. And the and the great part about this, and uh we'll get into it with Chris, uh, and just to be uh totally uh I've only read, I just got the book this morning, so I've only read about 65 pages of it, but it's been, I love Pat Riley. There's an aura about him, similar to Rick Pitino, if you know what I mean, where I he do. walks into a room. Another Nick coach, former yeah, Nick he, coach. When, when, there's, when there's certain coaches, when they walk into a room, Belichick, or they have an aura to them where you're like, okay, wow, this is big time now. And that's, so I'm interested to hear about that, but those, uh, those 90s teams, man, I mean, I was in my early 20s and. And, right. you, know, you thought it was going to last forever, like much like the 80s Celtics. And there's a quote in the book I want to talk to him about, like one of the neck, the Knicks executives says, and the, you know, enjoy this while it lasts. And everyone looked at him like, what are you crazy? This is going to go on forever. Well, you right. really do, because, you know, we know right now the current Knicks uh, team, we thought had a little bit of hope. I mean, they're having a bit of a rough year. They're a young team, but it's been, you know, 20 something years since they've been really relevant on the NBA stage. Yeah. And I think you really touched on two things you touched on right there. Uh, with Pat Riley, who again was coming off a sensational run with the LA Lakers, and how Riley, you know, he does a good job, Chris Herring, in this book detailing how Riley sort of almost sort of fell into coaching in the first place. It wasn't necessarily his calling after he had played in the NBA. He's a heck of an athlete, uh, Pat Riley. Um, but also, just you know, he does have an aura, but he's also got an ego. And I didn't know there are a lot of things about Riley I didn't know until reading this book, and it's really interesting. The other thing I think, you know, we touched on New York and how big it was in the city and the surrounding areas for Knicks fans and Madison Square Garden was electric and they get into how hard of a ticket it was um, to get into see these Knicks games. And even not being an, an NBA a Knicks fan, as someone who likes the NBA and appreciates the history of the NBA, it's it, there is you cannot dispute that when the Knicks are good, the NBA is so much better. I mean, it just is because everyone goes into that place and it's everyone. It's a big game on everyone's schedule. Um, So, yeah, and again, we'll get into it. But I I think those are two things that I really took away from it. Just like I missed I miss the impact that having a great basketball team in New York City. Sorry, Brooklyn Nets has on the NBA. And I I learned a lot about Pat Riley. (laughs) Yeah, he uh, he's a strange dude for sure. I mean, yeah, we'll get into that with Chris, as you mentioned. Uh, the other big Not thing well is Super, yeah, the Super Bowl, Brian, coming up, the Rams and uh, Bengals. And I was just telling you before we started, I, uh, the Super Bowl bug hasn't really bitten me yet. I, I, you know, I just, 
you know, I'm, I'm going to work that day. Um, right. I have to work because it's a ratings period, but uh, there's not the desire to, I mean, I'm going to watch it, obviously, but I just, I don't know, Brian, maybe it's just me. It's just not pulling me to the set just yet. It's only Tuesday, but uh, the buildup, I now, guess, hasn't happened yet. This is the first Super Bowl ever, and I don't want to get the scenes, where you had both number four seats make it, meaning, you know, no top seat, no no home field advantage guys. Or no, no, well, it's interesting the Rams had that, but like no top seats, no number two seats. Is it a lack of uh, what is it a lack of like you don't think these like these aren't two superstar teams that let me put it this way if it'd been the Packers and the Chiefs would this rope you in or is, is it the matchup or just the game itself is a total a little bit of an indifference to it yeah I mean like for example I'm going to pick the Rams because I think that's who I picked before the season started I don't remember but you, you uh, picked the Chiefs but you had the Rams in the, in yeah. the game uh I, I, if I'm going to pick it, I'll pick the Rams. But if the Bengals win it or the number's close, I, I guess I don't have a dog in the fight more than anything else because when the Patriots were in it or Tom Brady with the Buccaneers, I rooted against him. So I don't of have course. any – there's no villain, I guess. Maybe that's the best way to describe it for me. I don't have a, a villain in this game. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, there isn't a villain. That, that's sort of a good thing because we don't have to sit through Tom Brady having another parade yeah. stumbling around on boats in Tampa Bay. But I get your point. There is maybe, and maybe this is something that we'll look back on. It'll be a coming out party for someone that we, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'll, I'll, we'll get into it in a minute. So we'll make our picks here. But uh, you know, you're you're going to pick the Rams. I'm right now as we're sitting here on a Tuesday morning, the or Tuesday afternoon before the Super Bowl. The uh, if you care about this thing, and a lot of people do, because it's going to be some record gambling numbers apparently. The Bengals are minus four or uh, plus four and a half. I am, I've been picking them the whole postseason. I didn't think they'd win a couple games. I thought they'd uh, cover. They've out what outright won those games. And I'm, I'm picking, I'm picking Cincinnati. I don't know why. Just feels like maybe this is their time. Maybe you know, you're special, t- little special team, little special yeah. quarterback magic, a little magic with that quarterback. It might be really, really special. Yeah, I have a feeling Aaron uh, Darnold could be a big problem from Joe Burrow in this game, the defensive yeah. lineman for uh, the Rams. And the other, the other character in this game that really intrigues me, and I say the word character, is a player from the Rams who, uh, I don't know if you can guess who I'm talking about, but he's a real character, and that would be Odell Beckham. I was going to say, did he used to play for the New York football Giants? I mean, he's had a great, great postseason. He's a free yes. agent after the year. Yes. And he is playing for a – Big contract. I don't. Is he twenty nine? I'm not sure how old he is. That's the top of my head. Uh, I don't want to. He might be young, younger, but I'm not positive. But anyway, drafted uh, in 2014, I think. So I'm not going to do the math. But yeah, I mean, if I wanted to sit there and be analytical about it, I'm like, okay, the offensive line for Cincy has stunk the whole the whole years, but and into the postseason. But Burrow survived that. They Kansas City played really poorly. Maybe since he got a little lucky, I guess my logic should be. The Rams and their defense should – this is where the luck runs out for Joe Burrow in Cincinnati. But I'm just – this is a do thing, this dumb thing. Like, I got a feeling, Eric. I got yep. a feeling. So I'm thinking 27-24 uh, Cincinnati. Odell will be 30 in November, so he is 29. 30 in November. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah, I, I, again, I don't have a real feel for the game. I'll think about it more as we approach Sunday. But uh, I don't know. The Rams are playing basically a home game, which – They're playing a home helped, game, yeah. That hasn't helped them in the past. But uh, we'll see. I mean, I'm, I, I, I like the event itself, but the other thing is, is it going to draw in? I don't anticipate a huge rating because I don't think it's going to draw in the average fan or the there's no star power per se. Would you agree with that? No, I think it's going to be a huge rating because yeah. I think every year I just think I just think it'll be a huge rating um, because when doesn't it? And I could be wrong, yeah. but I think that I'm going to base I'm going the opposite with you. Um, I think there was some Tom Brady hangover. You know, in the last couple of years with him, you know, last year with him on the box, I think a fresh, I think fresh faces will attract people to this game. You and again, you could, I'm, I, I could yeah, very I well know. be wrong. I don't know. A lot of times, you're right. It's the star power. You know, we all, you and I say, oh my goodness, LeBron James is on again. Well, you know what? Like, we know why the Lakers are on all the time because that's when they get the ratings. So yeah. we'll see. We no, will have something to talk about. You can talk about Tom Brady hangover, but you tune into the game because you either want him to win or you want him to lose. You know, you're right. You're right. And this year, there's not like I said. I don't. I don't. I'm. I'm not going to lose any sleep on whoever wins this game. And that, 
that uh, that's it, you know. So we'll see. Uh, all right, you, we mentioned it. We got a guest coming up. So you picked the. What was your number on Cincinnati? What was your final prediction here? I am picking Cincinnati twenty-seven, Rams twenty-four. All right, I'm going to go a little different. I'm going to say, you know, I was going to say twenty-eight nineteen, something like that. Twenty-eight nineteen right. that the Rams. So we'll see how our this, predictions hold up, but uh, I'm looking this for, down, Eric. So yeah, oh, hey, watch out, watch out, hold me to it, hold me to it. Uh, nice. We're gonna take uh, we're gonna take a timeout, and when we come back, we're gonna talk to Chris Herring, the author of the new book Brian talked about earlier, "Blood in the Garden: The Flagrant History of the 1990s New York Knicks." I'm looking forward to it, but we'll talk about all that when we come back, Brian. Yeah, let's talk about Allswell. Allswell believes in the power of a good night's sleep. Designed to make good sleep accessible to all, the Allswell mattress features hybrid mattress technology. It combines the best of both worlds, memory foam and individually wrapped coils for a winning blend of comfort and support. Some good news, too. Um, great time to shop at allswellhome.com because there's some savings come up. Beginning Monday, February 14th, which is Valentine's Day, through Monday, February 21st, which is President's Day, you can save 20% off site-wide using the promo code PREZ20. Now, that's P-R-E-Z-2-0. That's the promo code. P-R-E-Z-2-0. Use that promo code, PRES20, between February 14th, Valentine's Day, and February 21st, President's Day, and save 20% off site-wide when you go to allswellhome.com. So it's a great time, you know, great time to take advantage of that. So sleep well and save well with All Is Well. All right, Chris, first of all, you had me... At hello, as they say in the prologue, I am a big time Knicks fan. But when I see a quote from Horace Grant that says, we didn't know if we were going to win every time we went to Madison Square Garden, but we knew we were going to bleed. I mean, if you're a Knicks fan, that pulls you right in. Just first, let's talk about how you've tapped into this rabid fan base of Knicks fans. Yeah, I, I mean, that was the reality of how they played. And if you're a Knicks fan, you probably love that. If you were a fan of the Bulls, the Pacers, the Heat, you probably did not or any other team for that matter, because that was not your team uh, that was out basically to hurt your team. Um, and it was just kind of a, a way of life for the Knicks. They recognized, and, and you know, I think on some level kind of word is almost a badge of honor that they didn't have the offensive talent that a Bulls team did, that even the Pistons did from a few years before that won the championships. And so the only way they really knew how to move forward to try to really work their way to the top of the league was to have an, a defense that was more intense than everybody else's, to have a defense that intimidated more than anybody else's. And Pat Riley essentially worked them up to that point. He used a really, really violent sort of messaging with this team. And he recognized when he came over from the Lakers, I think a lot of people expected him to bring a lot of the offensive traits from those Showtime Lakers to the Knicks. They didn't have the personnel to do that. And Pat Riley picked up on that very quickly. And literally his first day of practice said, we're, we're going to have to scrap and claw and fight and, and just really intimidate opponents um, to, to try to really have a, a puncher's chance at this thing, a fighter's chance at this thing. And, and they did. And they did get there. They really didn't have an ideal second scorer behind Patrick Ewing. John Starks tried to fill that role. He essentially became their, their primary option uh, in a series in 94 during the finals where Patrick really didn't match up very well against Hakeem Olajuwon. Um, but it's difficult to try to survive when you've got a second option that is as inconsistent as John Stark was. So their consistency here was, was the way they were coached and their consistency was the effort and the, the scrappiness that they played with and the physicality that they played with that, frankly, the league wanted nothing to do with and right. really ushered out of the league to, I think, push us much closer to what we have today, which is a league rooted more in skill, athleticism and talent um, because the league did not want teams to copycat what the Knicks were doing, which put guys like Michael Jordan and other players that were finesse, you know, stars that were rooted more in their, in their finesse and their athleticism, which the Knicks really did not have an abundance at the time. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that's the connection with Riley, which it sort of jumped out at me first. You think of Pat Riley and Eric and I are both, uh, you know, we, we grew up watching eighties NBA basketball, which is probably you know, a little biased, maybe the golden age of the NBA. And, you know, because Riley was so much Hollywood and Showtime and those teams, you know, it's the Showtime, you know, just the Showtime basketball, the way they played. I don't know, you know, going into Riley taking over the Knicks, coming off the bad boy Pistons, who sort of certainly played that sort of rough physical at times, quite, let's be honest, ugly basketball. You know, I don't know. 
I can't imagine going back in the time machine when that hire happened. Anyone was thinking, you know, not only would the will this type of basketball still be prevalent in the NBA of the next few years as the Pistons phase out, but Pat Riley of all people is going to be the guy <laughs> who will sort of lead the charge. But, but I'm guessing I, I can't read. I don't know what David Stern thought of that that week. He was hired, but I, I bet he was thinking, well, you know, we're going to get it. You know, Pat Riley is not going to do this, and but we, well, he's a great coach. So he said, this is how we can win. Don't try and do something that they couldn't do at that time. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on. And I think it's funny. Like, imagine if you're standing in your yard and you've had to stay inside for a week because there's just this massive storm the whole time. And then the storm finally passes and you breathe a sigh of relief because you can get back to your life. You don't have to you know, use an umbrella for the next week. Right. And then another cloud comes right back over and is even worse than the storm before where the Knicks are probably just as physical, if not more than when the Pistons were. I think the difference between the two, one, the Pistons had more offense than those Knicks did. And two, the Pistons had won two championships with that style of play. So the league wasn't necessarily, you couldn't really make a point to try to usher out a style of play that the champions were using. But then once the Bulls knocked them off and the Knicks come into the picture using the same strategy with younger players and players that are probably just as physical, if not more than the Pistons, the league did have a benefit in trying to protect the bulls, not to say that they were out cheating for them or anything like that, but they did have, I mean, Michael Jordan at that point had kind of replaced Larry bird and and magic Johnson. Magic Johnson literally was forced to step away from the game because of the HIV diagnosis. The year Pat Riley came to New York. Um, And by that point, Larry Bird was retiring at the end of that season as well. So you had basically you you had a benefit, essentially, to being able to protect Michael to make sure that you don't have a team that takes him out and hurts him, uh, seriously injures him. Um, And and quite frankly, again, the Knicks were a team that recognized Pat Riley recognized he, he, he coached the Lakers with some degree of physicality. But he that was never going to overshadow the offense that they had and the Showtime style offense they had. So that was that always got more attention. But Pat Riley used kind of violent messaging with them too. It just didn't show through as much the way it did when he got to the Knicks because the Knicks had nothing else to stand on. They didn't have enough offense to stand on. So yeah, the league really at that point I do think, and they they mostly admit this in the book, the league officials that I spoke to, that they did not want that physicality to be copied and to be intensified even more from where it was, because at that point, teams would have been convinced that they didn't have to have the same amount of talent or skill that the Bulls and other teams like that did, that they could basically level the playing field through other means that were dangerous. And uh, the Knicks tapped into that as long as they possibly could. The league started to really move away from it in 95. Once uh, once the Knicks made that finals run, the ratings right. were extremely low. And that finals, neither team between the Knicks and the Rockets broke the 95-point mark. Um, and that finals, it was right after Michael Jordan retired and the league was already struggling ratings-wise. Um, so it's very clear why they did away with um, the unlimited number of flagrants you could have at one time before getting suspended. Uh, Charles Oakley had more flagrant fouls by himself than 15 teams did in 1993. Yeah, that, that was incredible. Yeah. That was reason enough for them to want to move away from that. Uh, the hand-checking rules were changed, and Derek Harper was kind of the poster child of them wanting to do away with that. The fighting rules were altered because the Knicks had been in a couple of scraps that were massive that cleared the bench. You know, It was almost as if people from the stands were going to come out and start fighting too because there were just such widespread fights against the Suns and the Bulls in 94, right in front of David Stern, by the way. So the, the league had plenty of incentive to change it. They were worried that they're going to lose viewership, and they had already lost some viewership because of Michael Jordan and a dynasty not being involved in the finals. So the Knicks were certainly, um, I think, hurt by that. But I, I, it's funny because even though they recognize that, you talk to someone like Doc Rivers that played on a couple of those Knicks teams, right. and um, he's the first one to say, thank goodness they changed the rules. Like, it hurt us, but thank goodness they did it because the league was not the, – the game wouldn't have ever moved forward to what we have now had we stayed in that. When you're putting together a book like this, Obviously, you have great characters on the Knicks side of things. But when you really think about this, Chris, it's almost like a Hollywood script with the villains on the other side. Michael Jordan, Reggie Miller, uh, the the O.J. Simpson uh, connection during the 94 finals. So how much fun was it to kind of pull all that together? I mean, you had a lot of stuff to go through when you put together this story. 
Yeah, there there was plenty there. And and like you said, the way I describe it was like almost a Forrest Gump sort of element where yeah. the Knicks were involved in so many of those moments. Spike Lee and Reggie Miller, the OJ Chase, obviously all the back and forth with Michael Jordan, Pat Riley going across the, you know, the way to go to Miami and having a rivalry through that, the infighting with the league itself, um, which doesn't even get to any, and I really didn't get to this in the book, but just the, the culture of the nineties and hip hop and how the Knicks, you know, were in beastie boy videos and all sorts of other stuff. Like there was a lot going on and the Knicks were kind of involved at every turn. They just never were really in the winter circle and never really the complete focal point of all of it. Similar to Forrest Gump, they're kind of, shaking the president's hand, but you're more focused on the president than Forrest. You know, like a lot of weird moments like that. And the Knicks were involved and intertwined with a lot of that. So it was very fun. I think my biggest question as the author was to try to figure out, okay, you've got to tell anywhere from five to maybe eight, nine, 10 guys stories here over the course of all these chapters. But you also need to explain what happened in each season. You need to give enough of a backdrop to explain what was happening in the world at that time or what was happening within the league to make things the way they were, uh, who was winning every year, what sorts of massive stories were happening off the court, whether it was Magic Johnson, the HIV diagnosis, um, or, or what have you, is it related to Richard Nixon or anything else? Like there's some weird kind of things in there that I just had to find a way to try to tie those things together, but also have each detail that I include in the book somehow move the story forward. to where you don't feel, you never want to feel as if, you have to take a total break and that I'm not helping you explain, helping you understand something that you feel like you have to go back 20 years in the past. And then I'm, you know, I'm not trying to take a reader completely back and forth in the book. So I didn't ever want it to feel like that. You want it to feel like a smooth transition from one detail to the next. And you want for, you know, the other thing I, I really shied away from doing in this book, you know, I have straight details in there that are, Interesting. Uh, you know, a lot of people pointed out some of this on page four that was really odd or really interesting as it related to Xavier McDaniel. But I wasn't trying to be gratuitous in any spots just to do it. Um, that there was a pretty specific reason that I included everything. Page four, I explained that Xavier McDaniel and that some of his teammates from Seattle told me that he would tie that one, he would walk around the locker room fully erect, but mm. secondly, that he would tie a towel around it. And it was like a weird detail. And people are like, oh, my God, like you have that on the fourth page. But the reason I did it, I was talking about how much these guys prioritized and really wore as a badge or a chip on their shoulder, their manhood constantly, that they that's kind of the team. And and some people have used the phrase toxic masculinity with me uh, about this team where like they constantly were kind of walking around and wanted everyone to know who was boss. That was the way they played to some extent. And it was the way they behaved even in the locker room to some extent. So like, even with that, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm sitting there just really trying to figure out how do I get across how manly and masculine and just tough these guys were all the time. And then I thought about it and I was like, well, that detail actually might fit there. It, it seems weird, <laughs> but like, I'm not, I'm not necessarily in the business and anyone that knows my work from having covered the Knicks for the wall street journal for five years um, from 2012 to 2017, they know that I'm, I've never been someone, even if I have a really interesting detail, I don't use it just to use it. It has a purpose and it's to move the story forward. So I was constantly trying to do that, but it's difficult when you've got thousands of details from hundreds of people just trying to structure them in a way that makes total sense that you, you hope fills out each of the characters that's in the book. You know, that's, you mentioned, I think you do do a great job of just trying to, show the reader the culture that happens within a locker room maybe not just even the Knicks locker room but any nba locker room and i'm not going to give away away the whole part like i want people to read your book but i thought it was a great point where basically there was some friction in the locker room because of things like uh card games and i just love the thing where i'm not going to give out the quote of money but saying how do you expect a guy to pass to you when you own x amount of money from card games it's just you know it's just you don't think about that stuff as a fan but these guys are living with each other and practicing with each other and working with each other. And they're all huge egos. So I thought that was just, you know, the whole, all that goes into that, particularly with this team, because this team wasn't just a paycheck team. You know, they weren't, you know, they knew they were good. At least they thought they were good. And they had a, a, a goal, defined goal. And Riley, to his credit, just seemed to do a job, just tunnel vision, just tunnel vision with these guys. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you. I don't want to shy away from the compliment you just laid out. That was the goal. And um, and I think one of the, I think Publishers Weekly said something about how they felt like this book evoked the tension of professional basketball. And I wanted to do that. Um, certainly. I mean, this was a team that year in, year out. Uh, I don't think it started that way where people expected it, but they had a chance to win the championship every year, basically for a 10 year run, almost a 10 year run. And um, yeah, I mean, when I have you in a locker room for eight years, I would certainly hope that there's something that's getting across about that there are tensions involved with that. There are people that don't like each other. There are players that don't like the coach. There are coaches that don't like all the players, you know, and as it relates to Charles Smith, that comes right. across very clearly from Pat Riley. And I think it takes a toll on a player like Charles Smith, who had his own demons anyway. Um, once it came to, you know, that game in uh, game five in 1993 against the Bulls. Oh, the Hugh but, Holland game. That too, you really start to wonder um, how much of a toll that takes on guys or when Pat Riley essentially openly openly challenges Charles Smith and, you know, who he more or less kind of accuses of faking an injury. He says, if I needed you to give me one minute tonight and we would win a championship, if you could give me that minute, could you do it? And he said, of course I could. And then he says, well, then why the hell are you wearing that suit at a time where he's talking to the rest of his players? And Charles Smith is wearing a suit because he was planning to sit out that game because he's hurt. Um, I mean, he's openly calling out his toughness or his ability to play through an injury um, because he views Charles Smith as being soft. And that is such a crazy concept to me just because, one, sitting out a game because your knees aren't right, a guy that eventually we learn has chronic knee problems, doesn't make you soft. Um, But it was just a very different time, and it was a roster full of tough guys. Um, who were playing through every injury known to man. And so Charles didn't really fit that. And Riley really wasn't that excited about having him on the roster and basically asked the front office, are you sure you want to sign this guy back once his contract is up? So um, I think you needed that insight and you needed those backstories um, to understand where the flaws were, even in the best of the people they had in the organization. Pat Riley was certainly the best coach they've had in all, you know, all those years and all these years. Um, but some of the stuff that he did back then, and certainly if he did it now, it would not fly at all in today's league, but it also tells you about how and why stuff probably wouldn't have lasted with Pat Riley. I I, I tend to think that maybe if they win the championship in 94, that it kind of wipes the slate clean and, you know, guys can kind of forget about whatever grievances they have. Um, but without that title and not having won that championship, it just felt like he was flooring the gas pedal in a way that wasn't going to be sustainable for that team, for those players, for Pat himself and just his own well-being. Uh, maybe an ownership stake could have helped. Maybe if he'd moved into management fully the way he has with the Miami Heat, it could have helped. But um, that sort of messaging that he used where he's having them watch Rams headbutt each other and violent car crashes on video right before they take the court, like that just, like, you can't keep up that level of intensity for very long, I don't think. And Pat even said at one point, I, you know, one point I dreamt about having my name and my, my banner in the rafters, the way the red Holzman was, you know, but I I'm not sure anybody could really do that in a place like New York. It's just like the, the media glare and the intensity and the way he coaches. I just don't know that it would have been possible. Realistically. There was no load management back in 1994. Chris. <laughs> so Charles, <laughs> Charles Smith didn't have that, uh, that, uh, that album. I was going to say, we talk about Pat Riley and, and, you know, Brian and I were talking about this before he came on and, He's such a complex character. I mean, his demands to be a head coach, whether it was when he was with the Knicks and he moved on to the Heat, uh, his his you know his style, everything about him is so complex. When you went through this, did you come away thinking you knew who Pat Riley was beforehand? Was he different than after writing the book? What was your thoughts about Pat Riley the man after you wrote this book? How much did your I guess uh, definition of him change? Yeah, I was kind of blown away by the intensity of the guy. Again, I just, it's funny because I had a friend um, who works, you know, pretty much works with the Miami Heat. And he read the book and loved it. And he was like, I I want you to do me a favor. I'm going to send you a copy of the book and I want you to sign it to Pat and, and, you know, write an inscription to Pat and I'll give it to him. And I looked at the guy. I was like, are you sure that Pat wants me to sign a book to him? Like, are you sure he's going to like this book or even want to read this book? 
because the portrayal reads kind of crazy. And I don't think it's because I was trying to paint him mm-hmm. that way. I just think it's the multitude of stuff I got on him that makes him, I mean, he, he sounds unhinged in, in spots. I mean, think about, you know, just that you guys know this, but like for people that are listening, I've got a detail that I think is actually a really telling detail and important detail about a time where Pat is in the room when his boss, Dave Check, is the team president, is having a conversation with his wife. Dave oh, Check yes. is speaking to his wife mm-hmm. and Dave Check, his wife, is getting a, a family car. She's getting a Chevy Suburban. She just wants to know what color she should get or what color Dave will be okay with. <laughs> she lays out forest green. Dave Checkett says, that's fine. That's a good pick. Riley can overhear it because he's standing right there while Dave is on his cell phone. And he has this mortified look on his face like, she can't get green, Dave. Are you kidding me? Dave Checkett says, why? Like, he thinks he's kidding, first of all. But Riley's completely serious. He's like, that's the color the Celtics wear, Dave. And Dave is kind of dumbfounded. And he realizes Pat's being completely serious. So Dave Checkett tells his wife, it can't be green. (laughs) <laughs> Dave's wife can hear this over the phone. So she's kind of dumbfounded too. Doesn't even think that they're being serious. She realizes they are. She says, okay, how about red? And Riley has an even more animated reaction to that because that's the color of the bulls wear. Right. So, I mean, you start to understand a little bit, like that's why I'm saying, I don't know that Pat could have lasted in yeah. New York because when you're scrutinizing that, I mean, like, of course you're going to feel slighted when the team doesn't pay you back. $10,000 that you spent to let your players gamble in Reno that you've basically given to them. And then the team goes on a 15 game winning streak. You're going to be out of your mind, angry over something like that. Let alone, if you feel like there are other promises that have been made to you, let alone if your players talk to you a certain way or talk about you a certain way in the media, all of it was getting to be too much. And I think that's what I was showing with even Riley's Lakers tenures that he just felt like the walls closed in. He was a very paranoid figure. Right. He was very paranoid when it came to the Knicks the sorts of accusations he made of people with the Knicks, um, the fact that he would not let the team psychologist work with the players. Another thing that would not fly in today's NBA. Um, you know, there's that he accused a, a coach and uh, not a coach, another, another person in management of basically selling him out to the media about the idea of a, the Knicks not having any black assistant coaches and him accusing the one black person in management of having fed that idea, that story I did to a writer when actually that person was someone that tried to talk the writer down off the ledge from doing the story and did talk the writer down off the ledge from doing the story. But Pat had accused kind of blindly accused this guy of having, I don't know, like a kinship with the black reporter and that being the reason that the black reporter even had the idea to do the story. He just was super paranoid. And I just don't think guys like that are long for certain jobs. Again, maybe if they had given him an ownership stake, but you know, as I explained in the book, they, they probably couldn't have really done that um, given the way they were corporately owned as opposed to being owned by one person like Mickey Harrison with the Miami Heat. Right. You know, you've talked to these people, Chris, just in that you've talked to a lot of the, the people involved in the book uh, in research, obviously, in writing the book, what is the reaction all these years later towards Riley among them? Is there a sense of, I don't know, are they still, is there gratitude or is there a respect or is there something still like uh, uh, something else there? As it relates to the people that he was working with? Yeah. The like all these years later, how, if you said, you know, what, what do they think about when they think about their time working with Riley back then? It's interesting. First of all, I think most of them recognize that he was a, a damn good coach. I mean, a great coach uh, because that Knicks team was never the most talented. I think they were they are more talented than they get credit for, but right. I, they were not. I mean, they had two main cogs of that team in Starks and Mason who did not together play even a combined three years of high school basketball. <laughs> that's um, incredible. I mean, like that's and crazy to even think about because most guys – individually play four those guys played a little bit less than three um so i mean even if they were talented or skilled like they weren't the most refined they didn't have you know starks in particular and i make a point of this the book was not the most refined he never played more than one year of ball at any one of the four schools he played at you know is the guy that bagged groceries at safeway for 335 an hour a few years before being on the NBA final stage. So this was just a really unusual team that had its problems, that had its caveats, that had its flaws. And Riley buffed those dents out, you know, basically, and and made polished them up 
to where they could play for a title. Um, granted, it was in a year where Michael Jordan wasn't there, but he had them playing toe-to-toe with Michael Jordan. I mean, right. it would be another... Michael, during the, the six titles that he got, during that era, the Knicks were the first team to take them to a seven-game series. And I want to say it was like another six years before anybody else did it. Yeah. Um, and not to mention just that, that obviously did not win that series. But then in 93, the next season, the Knicks won the first two games of that series. So they, right. I mean, they've to this day, other than maybe the the Orlando Magic, the year that um, the 95. they beat the Bulls when Michael right. came back, I don't think any team ever had a two-game lead on Michael. Um, you know, so that was a... I mean, that was a team that could go le- legitimately go toe to toe with Michael Jordan, despite having far less talent than the this Bulls a, did. Yeah, this is a longer discussion. You could have a whole other discussion on. I can make the case that that no offense to the Sonic teams or the Jazz teams that they met the finals, that the Knicks teams might have been the toughest teams they faced during those championship years. I agree, and uh, you know, Michael. Somebody asked me a question about this a couple of days ago because I think during the last dance, I think Michael says the Pacers were that team, and I think at the end of the era they probably were. At the end of the '90s, they probably were. During those middle '90s years and like the early '90s years, once they had beaten the Pistons, I don't think there's any question the Knicks were the toughest opponent for him, physically, mentally, um, just as far as the way the series played out. Where a lot of people to this day believe, you know, if Charles Smith makes that basket that they beat the Bulls, um, that they, you know, that they're going to win that series. Somehow they've got another game left in Madison Square Garden if they can win that one. And again, they had taken the Bulls to seven. Look at the first six games of that series, as I mentioned in the book. They were out scoring, out rebounding, out assisting, shooting a better percentage from the field than the Bulls were. They had far more flagrant, so they were intimidating them. Scottie Pippen was completely banged up because Xavier McDaniel was trying to hurt him throughout that series. There was an intimidation factor that just it was very real. And um, it's, it's hard to realize that. I know people that haven't read the book or, you know, are not as into it as I had to be for the book do not recognize how close they were, but they were closer than basically anybody through the first part of that nineties era. So I, I, to your initial question, people within that orbit recognize that Riley was a fantastic coach. Um, I do think that there is still some lingering frustration about the fact that he did do something that really was not legal from the standpoint of he was contractually obligated to the Knicks. Even once he quits, that's fine. But like, you need to give it another year or two before you can really go and coach for another team. I I think there is lingering frustration. I think there were some really hurt feelings when the book came out and people realized that he was already thinking about the Miami situation within an hour of that game ending against the Pacers, because it was a heartbreaking loss to the Pacers that they barely lost. Um, and that Riley had already had his mind set really all the way going back to basically January of that last season with the Knicks, that he was essentially already trying to finagle a way to get to Miami, whether his friend was going to own the team or even once it became Mickey Harrison, that he and Mickey Harrison had spoken in February. Um, who knows whether it was about the job itself, but they had been introduced and they had met each other. Um, so people are frustrated about that. I think what people are most frustrated about from the Knicks side. And I think Pat has frustrations too, but from the Knicks side, the frustration is that Pat made it sound like there was something the Knicks weren't willing to give him. And from the Knicks side, they're looking at it like, why can't you just say what the truth was? You left because the opportunity you had in Miami was not only for more money, which I think it was like um, something like, what was it? 40 million over five years. So it was $8 million a year that he was going to get from Miami, plus an ownership stake. The Knicks were going to give him $15 million over five. So it was like basically more than twice as much money Miami was offering, and they were going to give him an ownership stake. And so they're like, just say that you're leaving because, like, yes, you left and you broke the rules to do it, but that's a sweet, a much sweeter <laughs> deal than anybody could have given you. But don't make it out to be something that we did to you or that we were doing to you. Just tell the truth that you would left for a, a much better richer opportunity and anybody would have done that the frustration that pat has i think probably to this day is that he faxed in his resignation to the knicks nick fans still are furious about that to this day they hate pat riley because of it but the knicks management knew that he was quitting they already knew that so the fact that they kind of played up his faxed in resignation as like this shocker to them was not really accurate and so they kind of as people were trying to tar and feather Pat on the way out the door, 
the Knicks fans were throwing plenty of tar, plenty of feathers at him too, as if it blindsided them when it actually didn't. So Pat, Pat kind of fell into the trap that they laid. Um, and I think that there's some residual frustration about that. Last thing before we let you go, the, you know, what, which is interesting about this whole run of the nineties is Pat Riley leaves and the, it kept going. Jeff Van Gundy stepped in. The Knicks continued to win. You, often you don't see that. There's usually a step back, whether it was the Giants, Bill Parcells leaves, Ray Hanley comes in. There's a there's a dip. They kept winning for a few more years. So final thing, just were you surprised with how the success continued those last few years of the decade? Yeah, yes and no. Um, if I am, it's mostly because Patrick, just his body held up for so long. Right. Uh, it was a guy who, you know, go back to 90. One ninety eighty nine, his knees were already. I mean, he was wearing some heavy knee pads at that point. His knees were kind of already shot. You know, I think when Pat got there, Patrick was already something like twenty nine years old. So the fact that he lasted as long as he did um, was kind of remarkable. But no, I mean, just as far as the switch to Van Gundy, I mean, they could have had him earlier. I don't think anybody recognized that he was like ready to step in and be head coach right then. The Knicks were certainly a very coveted job after Pat Riley left. They've been a title contender for years at that point. They tried really hard to get Chuck Daly. um, And he probably would have been the most ideal replacement for somebody like Riley because he was so well-respected. He coached the dream team. He coached Patrick in the Olympics. Uh, He was a guy that dressed the same way, you know, (laughs) that had his own, uh, you know, stylish hair and everything else who had won two championships, who was coached with the same style of defense that the Knicks were playing anyway. That was the guy they wanted when they didn't get him. They went to Don Nelson, who was kind of a 180 from Pat and demeanor yeah. and the way he treated people and the way he spoke to people. Certainly the way um, he dressed, the, the way he dressed, the way he coached uh, where defense was kind of more of an afterthought and offense was zany. And, you know, he had minute bowl spotting up for threes back in the early nineties. It was just a very different guy that should have been, you know, all his ideas were right. Wanting the guys to, use Anthony Mason as the point forward kind of ahead of his time wanting to de-emphasize Patrick was ahead of his time wanting to trade Patrick for Shaq would have been brilliant if the Knicks had actually tried to do it and been able to do it uh, without Patrick finding out about it Um, wanting Derek Harper to kind of play off the ball so he could be more of a spot-up shooter because he realized we need more spacing in our offense all that stuff and and practicing the guys less hard Um, a team that was aging especially Patrick was spot on, but the Knicks were so resistant to all of it because they didn't like Don Nelson. (laughs) Uh, So Van Gundy was perfect in that regard because he wanted to get them back to the stuff Riley had done. He was a Riley protege, but also he, he, he wasn't, he wasn't as cold as Pat Riley. Like he dealt with the players and enjoyed them and the players liked him to some extent. And so I think he was a perfect fit, maybe even more perfect than Chuck Daly would have been just from the standpoint of, these guys had a built-in respect for Jeff because they'd worked with him because they dealt with them and, and he'd been there. And so um, I'm not stunned that the success continued. If anything, again, I'm more was more surprised that Patrick just held up as long as he did. It's really hard to play in that physical an era for 15 years at that position with that much on your shoulders, with that lack of offense that that team had, that he made it as long as he did. And obviously his body started to get about towards the end with the, with the Achilles and everything else. But, um, you know, maybe not totally surprised. If anything, maybe the surprise was that they unraveled so quickly after those people started to hit the exits. Patrick, uh, Dave Checkets, Jeff Van Gundy, pretty much as soon as they left, it was over. And uh, I think it obviously says a lot about the insertion of someone, too, into the picture uh, as to why that stuff started to unravel and Jim Dolan. But, um, yeah, it, it, it's it's a pretty remarkable thing to look at how how sustainable all of it was until those guys left and then how unsustainable it became right away. Listen, it's a wonderful read. Uh, if you're an NBA fan, if you're a Nick fan, if you're just a sports fan, the characters in this, uh, it's tremendous. And the, the attention to detail, you really deserve a lot of credit. And we thank you for taking a few minutes. The book is called Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. Uh, Chris Herring is the author. And Chris, thanks so much for taking a few minutes. I know you're a busy guy and why not? Because it's a great book. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, thanks for Oh, thank you guys so much for having me on. It's really a pleasure. And I appreciate you even wanting to have me on in the first place. Be well. Thanks a lot. Thanks. No problem. Thank you so much, guys. Take care. Brian, you lined up that interview with Chris Herring. Blood in the Garden, the 
flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. I can't wait to finish the book. What a great guest you lined up for us there. And again, I know you're not a fan, but just some of the information Chris gave us is unbelievable. And if you're not running to buy this book, you're crazy, right? Yeah, if, you have an, if you're a Knicks fan or an NBA fan, again, you just love that time of basketball history. It was an interesting time. It was not, maybe it wasn't your favorite brand of basketball, <laughs> but Eric, it was never boring. And Chris certainly, uh, his book certainly highlights that. Yes. Uh, and I've said it all along, people who are Knicks fans, you're going to miss Patrick Ewing when he's gone. And how's it been mm. since he left? How's it been? Uh, all right, we got to take one more time out. And when we come back, Brian's got a list of birthdays. Uh, he's narrowed it down from 38 like he had last week to just a few this week. So uh, when we have a big time guest like that, we got to, you know, move it on down. And of course, there's a former cowboy on this list. Shocker. Uh, we'll get Absolutely. to all that in a second, Brian. Go ahead. Hey, the big game's coming up, Eric. The big game. I heard that. You know? The big game. People want to shop for the big game. But maybe you're busy the week before the big game. You don't have time to be running all over the place going to the grocery store. That's why we suggest Instacart, instacart.com. Select items from your favorite grocery stores and shop from home with Instacart. That's right. Use the grocery stores or shop from the grocery stores you go to all the time every week when you need your food. You're not trying someplace you've never been or some, you know, you don't know what kind of savings they have or how the produce is. No, go to your local stores. And when you sign up for instacart.com, you'll go to personal shopper. And that personal shopper will give you real-time updates. You can check in with your personal shopper at the store, find out about savings. They'll tell you about maybe something that's on sale. And as you continue to use Instacart, they'll start learning about your shopping preferences and start looking for deals that you, you know, on shopping items that you buy on a regular basis. Hey, there's a deal this week. They'll find that for you. And here's the part I love. I love this part. Because, you know, we've all gone through this. Even, you know, if you cut cable, fine. But we've all had the cable guy go, like, I'm going to be there on Monday between 7.30 a.m. and 11.49 p.m. Well, no, no, no. Instacart lets you just, well, let me try this again. Instacart lets you decide when you get your groceries delivered. That's awesome. You pick a time for your groceries to, to be delivered. Super easy to sign up. So, again, I'm going to tell you again. You go over to our website, edbcpodcast.buzzsprout.com. Click on our website, click on the link for Instacart, get $30 off your first order of $50 or more. That's awesome, too. That's a great way to save. So shop from home and save with Instacart. All right, Brian, you got a list of birthdays. I, I teased it ahead of time, The uh, arguably the greatest quarterback in Dallas Cowboys history, one of the great quarterbacks of all time. Tops the list. Go ahead. And of course, yeah, I'm talking know, about Tony Romo. Absolutely. Uh, how, dare, how dare you? How dare you? Well, we're not talking about the we're not, we're not talking Richard Todd and the Jets today. That's no, uh, Roger Staubach. Wow, uh, great Hall of Fame quarterback from the Cowboys, Heisman Trophy winner, uh, 1963 at Navy at the Naval Academy, one of the great players of NFL history. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you're down in a game and you want a quarterback to make a big play, there's not any better than him, right? A little before our time, but man, you hear the stories about this guy. The Hail Mary, the first ever Hail Mary pass came off yeah. the arm of Roger Stahlbach. All right, I'm going to hit you with this one. And I hate it pains me to say this number, but I'm going to guess it anyway. I'm going to say he's 83 years old. Not a bad guess. Again, I gave a little bit of hint because uh, I said he won the Heisman in 1963. Uh, he's not there yet, but he is 80. So milestone right. birthday for Roger Stahlbach. Great quarterback. All right, who's next on your list? Oh, well, let's take a left turn from uh, – because these two guys don't probably have a lot in common. So. Uh, 70s rocker, uh, you know, I don't know if a glam rocker, but shock rocker, whatever. Alice Cooper. What do you mean he doesn't have a lot in common with Roger Staubach? You crazy? They roomed together at, uh, at Army. You didn't know that? Yeah. <laughs> Navy, Navy there. Close. Navy, you're close. You're very close. <laughs> uh, Alice Cooper. I mean, uh, talk about a career. I mean, great songs, crazy onstage presence. I believe his real name is Vincent. Because I right, always like he did change his name legally to Alice Cooper. Oh, he did? Because oh, yeah. every time uh, there's – and one of the Keith Richards Rolling Stones books, he, he refer, every time he sees Alice Cooper, he says, hey, Vinny, how you doing? <laughs> From like the, they've known each other forever, obviously. But uh, Alice Cooper, he just had a birthday this month. Didn't he earlier this month? I thought I saw that somewhere. Two days ago, yeah. Ah, man. How old is Alice Cooper? Uh I mean, he's got to be in a – he's a contemporary with the rest of those guys. So I'll say he's 73. Oh, very close, 74. All right, Alice Cooper, yeah. Alice, pulled out, uh, 
Great song. Still tours. Yep. Yeah. Lives, lives in the Phoenix area, plays golf like six times a week. Does a uh, commercial with, was it Baker Mayfield? He do, I don't know what the product he was selling, but him and he was in a commercial with Baker Mayfield. What were they selling? I forget what Who it was. Who cares? Yeah, exactly. Uh, who's <laughs> next on your list? Your favorite MASH character. Not, uh, I don't know about that, but uh, we did Alan Alda last week. So this guy had a birthday like six days later. Uh, and again, another one that will make us feel old because uh, we watched the show when we were kids. Uh, Mike Farrell from MASH. BJ, BJ Honeycutt from MASH. I, I don't know if there's a character on the show I like less than BJ Honeycutt. Oh, okay. Yeah, I could see that. It's not, I mean, I'm a, uh, the Henry Blake years are the best years. Obviously. Yeah, the first three years were the, by far the best. And then went progressively downhill from there. Yeah. But, you know, he's on the show. He's still with us, unlike some of the other actors. I, I, again, I have no idea. So I, I'm going to guess he's probably older than I think he is. I'm just going to say 80. He's 83. All right. Not bad. I'm in my window, Brian. Now, this one, I know we get we got to hustle because, you know, we've yeah. been a packed show. I was a little off on this one. I was a little surprised. He, he looks older than I thought he was, but I'll just go ahead and say it. Nick Nolte. Actor Nick Keith Nolte. Richards of acting looks. Yes. Nick Nolte. That might be an insult to Keith Richards. <laughs> Is he 75? Is he that old? Oh, he's a little older. He is oh. 81. Wow, no kidding. 81, yeah. There you go. And your last one, I always have a fond memory of for her role in, uh, she was in Fast Times, correct? She was, which turns 40 this summer. <laughs> Fast Times, Rich Ridgemont High. All right, so I'm going to guess she's 60. Well, we should Jennifer probably Jason. say her name first. Yeah, Jennifer, Jennifer Jason Lee. Wait, say, say it again, Eric. What, what was your guess? 60. Ding, 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 ding. Well, I figured Good she was about you. 20 when she played that role of a freshman in high school. <laughs> yeah. So that's what she uh, was, right? A freshman in high school, sophomore in high school? Yeah, it was a very, very, very virtuous girl. Uh, yeah. yeah. All right. Hey, listen, we brought you the goods this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. Super Bowl 56 on Sunday. We got a new Knicks book to talk about with uh, Chris Herring, who came on, which was great. So check it out. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, we'll wrap up the Super Bowl next week, and then maybe we'll turn our attention to some baseball, see where we're at with that. College basketball, uh, all the March Madness is right around the corner. Stick around for that, but until then. Uh, this is the EDBC Podcast. I'm Eric Dobretz. He's Brian Coleman. Until next time, Brian, take it back. See you.